Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a look at the Cup Series teams who quite possibly may miss the playoffs. How should we view them? What does this say about the teams and drivers? That, plus it is the last chance for those teams to make the postseason, so we will deliver our big Daytona preview. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back. This time at Daryl Waltrip's injury in practice prior to the 1990 Pepsi 400 at Daytona and its lasting impact. David, another interesting choice because if you search Daryl Waltrip injury, this particular crash isn't even the first thing that pops up, but there is a heck of a story to tell when you look closer. Again, this was 1990, a Friday practice crash at Daytona. DW is getting ready to make his 500th career start in the series. Instead, the crash left him with a fractured thigh, broken elbow, and a concussion. He would ultimately miss six races, David. And again, this was not a wreck I I really ever heard of or remembered. So why does this stand out to you? This injury occurred at what was maybe the most vulnerable time in his entire career. Uh, He was, uh, that season, sort of shooed out of that Tide ride. Tide was interested in having... Ricky Rudd in that car, and eventually they would go on to partner with Ricky Rudd. So Daryl was looking to start his own team. He was 43 years old, the winter of his career. And this crash, he went on to admit uh, well after the fact that it nearly ended his career because of all the damage that you mentioned, because of his age and the moving parts associated with it all. This crash actually would not have happened if he didn't have something go wrong mechanically with the car earlier In that practice session, that run, the run where the crash occurred, was supposed to have been a shakedown, just to see if everything was okay. (laughs) The crash happens, right? The injury is massive. He ends up with an 18-inch titanium plate screwed onto his femur. He was sedated uh, for the operation. He came to on the Saturday morning of the race, and this was when the Pepsi 400 at Daytona was run on a Saturday morning morning. The TV was on, the race was on in his hospital room, and he saw the race starting and he wasn't in it. Jimmy Horton was in his car (laughs) and he had to be filled in as to what was going on. The aftermath of the crash, he actually tried to rush back into the car a week later. Uh, He started the race at Pocono and then he was uh, subbed out. Jimmy Horton went on to finish that race for him uh, and, and help pad his points. But Daryl went on to say that he was in constant pain while he was in the car. It was a dumb thing to try. And he sat out the next five weeks as a result. Uh, He did end this season. He finished six of his last eight starts after the injury in ninth place or better. Uh, But physically, he has a bit of a limp to this day. Uh, Alan, you've seen him. And this wasn't... Uh, an injury that occurred in modern times. This was a gruesome hit that had a lasting physical ramification. And it was an injury that forced him to turn his life around a little bit. He vowed to stop drinking alcohol for a while Hmm. after this injury. Uh, And I'm not certain if that's still true, but Ken Schrader tells a really good story about this. Uh, When Daryl told him he hadn't consumed alcohol since the crash. Schrader told him, I visited you in the hospital when I saw you in that condition. I realized I should drink more. This practice (laughs) session, that's Schrader for you. This practice session, Alan, was not televised. ESPN didn't televise practice or qualifying 
footage of the accident exists solely because the TV show Entertainment Tonight was following Daryl around for the weekend, shooting a segment for the show. And that is how we have crash footage. As I mentioned, Daryl was starting his own team, and he had been in talks with Mellow Yellow about becoming the sponsor, and it seemed that it was very close to happening. But the accident happened, and Mellow Yellow, through Daryl's business manager, informed Daryl, while he was still in the hospital, that they didn't want a 40-year-old driver with a broken leg. Instead, Mellow Yellow signed with Kyle Petty and Felix Sabatis' team. The irony in that is that Kyle Petty crashed at Talladega later that year and broke his leg, but he was 30 as opposed to 40, so I guess that still qualifies. Uh, I will end this segment on a happier note, though. Daryl did get a sponsor for his new number 17 ride. He met with Western Auto Uh, shortly after the Pocono race that caused him a lot of pain. And he wrote in his autobiography that he was barely able to sit upright. I had someone hide my crutches and I stayed in my office chair with my leg hidden under my desk, but I still looked awful. They must have thought I was ready to die because I was pale and sweating, but I assured them I was all right. I was just hoping they wouldn't ask me to stand up. And uh, as luck would have it, the Western Auto reps were visiting the Charlotte area, uh, went to Daryl's shop. That was their first stop on their Charlotte tour. Their second stop was to Felix Abadis' shop uh, as a a, a sponsor grab, uh, potentially. But after the visit to Felix's shop, they returned to Daryl's shop and ironed out the deal that would help a Hall of Famer realize his dream and start a team that ended up providing him five more wins in the, uh, the winter of his career. Interesting. Episode 117 dedicated to the old number 17, Daryl Waltrip, and a a really heinous injury that, as David said, uh, affected him for the rest of his career and partially his life. Interesting start to episode 117 of Positive Regression. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's get it started, David, because we are on the cusp of the Cup Series playoffs. One more race to go down in Daytona. Uh, Last year's Daytona race was really exciting because of the teams trying to make the playoffs. It offers everybody in the field not already left, uh, not already in qualified for the playoffs, that, that one spot to make themselves uh, playoff eligible and a playoff team. 
David, it, it's a big question now, just in terms of teams that don't make the playoffs. How should we view them? And to me, this playoff system and being in it has, over time, become something of of the the have and have not the line, the Mendoza line of NASCAR, if you will. Are you in or are you out? If you are not in. Really, your season is not a success, right? You can't go to a sponsor and say, hey, we're a playoff team. Uh, and that, that seems like a significant thing to say if you want to talk about the, the success you've had during a year. What, what is your view on being in or out of the playoffs? That was really well put. I mean, Mendoza line's a, a good way to say it, but I hadn't it, it hadn't occurred to me the the bragging rights, basically, to go to a sponsor and say, no, we are a playoff team. That's important. And yeah, there are even for teams and drivers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and there are bonuses attached to making the playoffs. I mean, it becomes uh, a more lucrative season for you if you are one of the fortunate sixteen. So there are some organizations. I mean, and some are, are more surprising than others that might miss out completely for the playoffs. But you're right, as a Mendoza line, and and I'm and I'm thinking specifically about Stuart Haas Racing now. In, just to clear it, it is a feat sometimes. And considering that this is probably the worst season in Stuart Haas Racing's brief history since Tony Stewart became the co-owner, and they're still putting half of the company in the playoffs, despite being down and speed and, and everything else, that's pretty remarkable. And that's where I think some frustration is going to set in with some of these these teams that we're going to talk about is that, yeah, I mean, for at least the top 20 or so teams and points, this was a realistic goal that didn't quite pan out and how they should view that, whether it was realistic enough to consider this a, a, a failure uh, something we need to discuss. Yeah, and I think that, that you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of it, a lot of this will come down to expectation. When we discuss these teams and potentially an entire organization missing out on the playoffs altogether, uh, how we judge them and view their season as a failure or not, it comes down to what we were expecting out of them. So, David, let's start with Richard Childress Racing. They potentially could have both cars not in the playoffs. Right now, they will only have one. At best, right? Either Tyler Reddick or Austin Dillon's able to pass him in points, his own teammate. Therefore, uh, you know, one team at most for RCR. Potentially no teams in the playoffs for RCR. And, and asking if that would be a failure to have no teams from RCR in the playoffs, 1,000%. And David, to me, this is based off expectations. Austin Dillon, a winner in 2020. He is a multi-time playoff driver. The expectation going into 2021 is absolutely he should be back in the playoffs. Tyler Reddick coming off year two, coming off signs of, you know, good signs that he showed in his rookie year. You would expect improvement. And we've seen it on the track this year. To me, I would expect that car to be able to make the playoffs, to make that leap and be one of the top 16. So therefore, based on expectations, if you both don't get in, that is a major failure to me anyway, uh, on RCR's part. You know, from an organizational standpoint, they ranked 17th and 18th last year in speed. This year, per their average median lap rank, they're 14th and 15th. And that is tangible progress. In all forms of auto racing, I'd estimate the hardest thing to do is to get faster or remain fast. RCR got faster this year. 
but I agree with you. This year is a failure. Their point padding, what would have worked without Austin Dillon's win last year at Texas, that is no longer the cutting edge path. A few things have happened in that regard. The first is that the point accumulation game, while that was low-hanging fruit among the teams that could not realistically compete for wins in years past, well, Denny Hamlin abided by that path this year. Kevin Harvick abided by that path. They are both, in a vacuum, better than Austin Dillon and Tyler Reddick, and that is a problem if you're RCR. Uh, RCR is a company, I, I, I would say, on par, really, with, with what SHR did. They had at least one car faster than Harvick in 12 of the first 22 races. So I, th- I think it's fair to say that the speed was on par, but Harvick's driving ability alone puts him over the top. That's not counting the difference in pit crews. But yeah, this is an issue. The strength of the teams trying to point their way in, as RCR did in the past, has improved. The competition around RCR has changed. But the other thing that happened is that some teams understood that this isn't the only path to the playoffs. And this is arguably the hardest path. The easy path, and that's said with an asterisk, is to just win a race. Because boom, one and done. That's easier said than done, obviously. But in hindsight, we know the kind of emphasis now that Michael McDowell and Front Row Motorsports placed on the Daytona 500. Christopher Bell became well-schooled in road racing, won a race. Eric Almarola, poor speed on the whole of the season, decent on 750, and the team's pinpoint effort at New Hampshire, one of his best racetracks, resulted in an instant playoff berth. And Kurt Busch, who now he might, he might not have pointed his way into the playoffs, knowing what we know now. It's probably not a coincidence that the two races that were his fastest of the season were Atlanta and Atlanta, a track where he was a three-time winner prior to the win there last month. So they found this back alley path to the playoffs. All the while, RCR never once seriously contended for an outright race win. Not once. Not where their cars were present with speed and competing in the waning laps. Not once. And that might bite them. So it's a failure in a sense that they attempted to repeat the steps that have made them successful in the past with no real way to audible once it became clear that this was now a more crowded and more talented path. Well, they have one shot now to get one of the two in there. They, they can't have both. Is 50% of this organization getting in, is that acceptable to you given their speed, given what we expected out of them? It's possible, but even with their increase in speed to rankings that fall among the 16 fastest teams, their MO for a large portion of the season has been to pad points. Tyler Reddick was the stage point guy on road courses, but he was not contending for race wins in the traditional fashion. So I think you have to adjust for that. I think this was probably expected if you're going to have two teams really abide by this plan. At this point, yeah, one, being in the playoffs is the best option. It's certainly a better representation than zero. I would still 
suggests that it's a pretty significant disappointment based on the gains mm. the organization has made just getting faster, getting those cars better. Um, yeah, it's going to be a disappointment if it is one and it's a even more so if it's uh, both. All right. Next up, Roush Fenway Racing. David, this one's tough to me because for, uh, you know, we talk a lot the head and the heart on this podcast. For some reason, I, there's still a, like a connection for me, emotional connection. I don't know what it is with, with Roush Fenway. You hear the name Roush, you still expect success after all these years, right? Maybe I'm stuck in the 90s or the early 2000s, what have you. But if you take away all the names and just look at the stats, David, I would not have the expectation for either of these Roush teams to have made the playoffs if you look at, you know, if you were asking me before February 2021. And I, I you know, I look at Chris Buescher and Ryan Newman and the seasons they've had lately. Nothing about it going into the season said, to me anyway, that they should be playoff teams, right? So to that point, if they both end up missing the playoffs, it's exactly what I would have expected. <laughs> so is that still a failure, even though it's an expected one? I mean, but they both finished outside the top 20 last year. No, I totally agree with that. Uh, if you just consider the Fenway group owns the Boston Red Sox, if not the best baseball team on the planet, certainly one of the best and one of the top revenue producers. The Fenway group also owns Liverpool FC, recent Champions League winners and Premier League champions. That's a big deal if you're not into European football. Mm -hmm. And then they are part owners of Roush Fenway Racing. They are big spenders in other sports because of the revenue coming in that allows them to be big spenders. And that isn't the case here. There isn't a ton of revenue coming in. They are not spending. Uh, I, I don't think this was an organization with realistic designs on the playoffs because the investment for this current iteration of Roush simply isn't there. There's probably a little bit of overachievement in terms of speed. Chris Buescher and Luke Lambert produced the 18th fastest car. That's good progress. Ryan Newman and Scott Graves produced the 28th fastest car. Depending on who's telling you, it sounds as if Roush is all in on the development of the Gen 7 car, and that investment coupled with the investment in Brad Keselowski, which, by the way, that's a kind of a tacit admission that something's not working if you're going to go get Brad Keselowski, that makes next year an important season. I think it's a failure for sure if he doesn't crack the playoffs in 2022, but for this season, other than the financial windfall provided by the playoff purse, I can't, I'm, I'm with you. I can't envision a way in which this season would have or should have been better because there was no point this season in which they demonstrated a capability of doing more than, you know, what they typically show. All right, at least we're in agreement there. Uh, I mean, again, still, we'll talk about it in the Daytona preview, but still an opportunity for Ryan Newman and or Chris Buescher. Uh, next one, 2311 Racing. This this is another one. Interesting, David. A lot of hype, obviously. Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin, Bubba Wallace, uh, the Toyota Gibbs connection, all the sponsorship, all the attention they had going into it. Uh, maybe I fell into it. I'll admit to that. But if you take away, you strip away the emotion, you're left with a brand new race team heading into 2021. 
um, a driver who has never made the playoffs, you know, before never won a race before going into 2021. But when you have all that attention, the expectations blow up, right? Hot takes galore. Bubba Wallace says he wanted two wins, uh, which I don't knock him for. Obviously, he's going to say that. But David, instead of 2311 racing, if this car said LFR still on the door, what would you expect it out of, out of it, right? I mean, Ooh. a fringe playoff yeah. contender, right? That's what I would have expected that would have probably needed a win to solidify its spot in the playoffs. And to me, that's kind of what we got and what we have right now out of 2311 racing. Is that a fair assessment? It's fair. You make a good point on the hype. I mean, just depending on who you are and uh, what you believe and what you think of Bubba Wallace, you're going to fall on either side of the coin here. But I think just based on how I've seen this team act from week to week, I think this season's a failure that they didn't make the playoffs only because it was apparent that making the playoffs was an internal expectation of some sort. Now, that expectation, I'm with you. I don't think it was ever realistic. It should have never been bandied. And if by chance it wasn't the expectation, then Mike Wheeler perhaps was miles wide of the mark when it came to strategy. So let's go over this. This is a pretty extensive list here. Bubba Wallace's fastest races this year on non-drafting ovals came at Phoenix. He ranked 19th in median lap time. Uh, The Atlanta Spring Race also ranked 19th. He ranked 17th at Martinsville, 19th at Darlington, 9th at Charlotte in the Coke 600, 10th at Pocono, first leg of the doubleheader, and 19th in the second Atlanta race. The two Atlanta races... Bubba had 19th place speed because of the high tire wear. There wasn't much risk in pit strategy. He finished 16th and 14th. Martinsville didn't have green flag pit cycles. Bubba finished 16th with a 17th fastest car. The other races saw strategy a little less straightforward in which uh, there was more variance. We discussed Phoenix, that misfire uh, in depth back on episode 94, but the other races contained a lot of strategic risk. And for varying results, Bubba did not outfinish his speed rank. And regardless of the direct reasoning, whether or not it was Mike Wheeler's fault, this team underachieved in strategy-centric races, and that is the common denominator. I am not certain we would be saying the same thing if win and in wasn't a viable playoff path. At times, and this was highlighted at Phoenix, You want to see what the driver can actually do. Is he three positions better than his speed ranking? Is he three positions worse? Either way, you want to know. And in that scenario, we never got an answer. But a positive answer goes a long way towards building confidence and building morale. And that, to me, is uh, that, that sort of coming together as a group, that should have been priority number one for this season. Because, look, it was a new team. This will be the only season in which 2311 competes in a Gen 6 car. They got off to a late start last winter, not settling on a shop until December. And it again, everything was brand new. All the experiences. Remember, they entered Ty Dillon in the Bush Clash just to have a race under their belts to better understand how their personnel maneuvers through a race weekend. You remember that? If Because if you're oh, yeah. doing that... 
if you're doing that, I don't know how playoffs is the expectation. <laughs> and and if it was, it was too much of an expectation. And and from that, I'm not sure anyone fully understands the competitive extent of Bubba Wallace. And to me, I think that was the big thing that you needed to figure out this year was to get it right with the driver. And I think there are still a lot of questions left unanswered because of uh, a strategy-based MO that suggested there was some sort of edict that they have to make the playoffs. So given expectations, or what should have been realistic expectations, is it a failure if 2311 is not a playoff team come two weeks from now? I think that it is for them. I, I don't I don't want to say that they've wasted the year, but it could have been more of a year of concentrated growth on Bubba Wallace's part and on this team's part as a whole. And I don't think they got that. I think that, look, everyone gets big eyes. They're, uh, what's the saying? Your appetite becomes bitter, bigger than your stomach, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That kind of feels the scenario with 23-11 this season. They weren't a playoff team. They ranked outside the top 20 in speed for the majority of the year. And that's that's a stretch. Uh, just competing a race normally, this final 10 race stretch, if they don't make the playoffs, these final 10 races, if they just call a race as normal, let Bubba finish where he is. Let's see if he's three positions better than his speed or three positions worse. Either way, you want to go into the off season, knowing that that's going to be important. And that part of the season can, can probably turn the narrative here from between you and me on what their season has been uh, a failure or a small measure of success. All right. Fair assessment there. So we've covered Roush Racing, RCR, 2311, and finally, David, JTG Doherty Racing. Right now, in points, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 18th in the standings, obviously needs a win. Ryan Priest, 27th in the standings, non-charter team, needs a win. Uh, Prior to this year, did I expect them uh, to race their way in and get into the playoffs without being in on points, if you will? No. No. So to me, if JTG is not in the playoffs, it is not a failure to me because I did not really expect them to be other than maybe Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s or Ryan Priest's, uh, you know, non-drafting skill or drafting skills. I apologize. Uh, both of them competent draft racers, plate racers, if you will. Uh, that's how I would have expected them to make the playoffs if it were going to happen. And the fact that it hasn't happened yet still could maybe, but the fact that it didn't happen or hasn't happened as of yet is not a failure to me only because I did not expect much of them. Let's say. Ooh, okay. I, I think I disagree. Uh, really? If, if you will remember, uh, especially after his finish in the Bristol dirt race, Ricky Stenhouse finished second in that race. That was the high mark of his season. Uh, he finished sixth at Nashville uh, in the summertime, legitimately, I might add. But that early stretch of the year had us talking about whether he'd be able to point his way into the playoffs, mainly because he was talking about doing that. And and that, he has the 17th fastest car right now. Brian Patty has supplied 39 additional positions on normal ovals, which is pretty good. But the undoing, I think, is this team's road course performance, which I criticized this prior to Indy. JTG employs two efficient road course passers in Stenhouse and Ryan Priest, and efficient road course passers are hard to come by. And JTG effectively failed them. 
Stenhouse ranks 21st in points accumulated on road courses. Priest ranks 26th. So in no way did the organization take advantage of its driver's talents there. So yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to say that they, uh, yeah, this is a failure, Alan. I think so. At least oh. with Stenhouse's program, uh, not making the playoffs, but it's primarily because there was a lot going right. Perhaps we didn't expect that to happen, but there was a lot of positivity on the ovals and on the road courses. There were things going uh, wrong that conceivably could have gone right. The road course performance should have been better because the ingredients were there for better results. Um, so that, yeah, that Stenhouse at least didn't make the playoffs. I would consider that a failure because underlying numbers suggest this was a, a much better than expected season for JTG. And I think that belief of whether they can make it or not had to have shifted sometime uh, mid season. Yeah. Okay. So that assessment comes after seeing some performance into 2021, I'm assuming, because, you know, Ricky Stenhouse has never made the playoffs other than that two win season back in 2017. Every year after that, you know, 18th in points, 23rd, 24th, 18th right now in points. So I would have, you would have had to expect a jump from him, I I feel, if you will, uh, in performance this year to have thought that going into 2021. Are, Are you judging your assessment, say, a quarter of the way into the season or a little further? Yeah, yeah, I think we've got to go by what we saw uh, just from either the early part of the year up until now. I mean, just and, and now we didn't come into the season thinking Christopher Bell was a stalwart on road courses. Well, that certainly changed. I mean, I, I think he's a, a, a in play to win all of them going forward. With Stenhouse, we saw a team with this kind of capability and why I'm not really worried about Roush Fenway not making the playoffs is because we never saw this kind of capability. Sure, they rank close to each other in the speed rankings, 17th and 18th, but top end on their best day, Stenhouse gave us a sixth at Nashville. He he was padding points early in the season at a pretty consistent clip. It was incredibly consistent. And the undoing came on the road courses, which there were six of them, and uh, and they walloped him. That, that that really separated him from the rest of the pack because the the teams that he was competing against, SHR was better on road courses than we probably expected. RCR certainly was. JTG didn't make that leap, and maybe they didn't prepare for that leap because they themselves didn't think that they were in serious playoff contention. But as it turns out, had they had that program a little bit more buckled up for road racing. I think they could have competed. And it, the the fact that Stenhouse can't point his way in with a good Daytona performance, I think that at least could have happened. He can still win. But yeah, I think a better season, a far better season could have been had for uh, the 47 team. All right. And look, big picture, you know, the teams we discussed, RCR, Roush, JTG, 2311. You know, we obviously, David, we didn't discuss everybody, right? The, the Spires of the world, the Rick Ware Racings of the world. Uh, because, I mean, the ones we did... You figure there is at least something there, some potential that with a different, some different performance or what have you, they, they could have been in the top 16, but that's even if, even though the 16 is a large percentage of the field, it is tough. And, and there are big teams. There are drivers on big teams that will not be represented in the playoffs. We've seen it happen to Jimmy Johnson. Uh, so even though it's 16 drivers in 16 spots, it is still something of a feat to make it and be considered a playoff team or driver in the cup series. 
All right, David, good discussion about the teams potentially being, you know, froze out and, and not in the playoffs, but that's the beauty of the system, right? There is still one more race, one more opportunity, and a wide open one at that. At least at least a race that offers up potent, more potential contenders than most given weekends, say like we saw last week in Michigan. Yes, we are talking about Daytona and our weekly race preview. Uh, David, this is the last race of the regular season. It is right back to where we started in the Daytona 500. So being that it is the last race of the regular season, should anything in terms of strategy, uh, the stage point ambition, you know, what you're going after, should any of that that we saw in the Daytona 500, will any of that change going into what is now race 26 and the final race of the regular season? Well, if the goal was to win the Daytona 500, I would say everything stays the same, right? Because this weekend's objective for every team, save for maybe that of Tyler Reddick, is to win this race. So with that, if the idea is to ride in the rear of the field and avoid calamity, that may as well remain the goal. Team Penske has a habit of just going to the front and letting the chips fall. Based on crash inclusion rates, this is a dangerous thing to do. It helps them that all of Keselowski, Logano, and Blaney are good at this form of racing. Uh, Well, now they can go and do that without there being any kind of points consequence. Uh, But overall, it should be freeing for these teams to just run the race that they want to run. And that has me maybe more intrigued than any playoff implications because it's the same goal shared by most the avenues of getting there in this race will be different. And I look forward to watching how that plays out. It's, it's going to be a game of, of different plans. And that kind of excites me. All right. Uh, so what what matters at Daytona? We, you know, it, it's a different animal, these drafting tracks. But it seems like, as we always talk about when we come to these tracks, there is a something of a select group that seems to rise to the top <laughs> because of uh, whether it be their skill or their speed or what have you, or just their their knack for doing these tracks. So w- what matters here at Daytona? Can I surprise you with something? Uh-oh. Speed matters. Speed matters. How about that? But, but the, go into that because we people think of the draft and maybe, sure. you know, it's not, there's no car separating itself, like at least visually, you know what I mean? So uh, g- give us an idea of how, how much speed, the literally being the fastest car or faster car on the track does factor in. The fastest car in the 2020 Coke Zero 400 belonged to William Byron. He won the race. Now, I'm not pretending that this is something that it isn't because having the fastest car Uh, It certainly matters less at Daytona than it does at most tracks. And I don't think we're shocking anybody by saying that. And it's true in the winning percentage. Uh, It's about 15% of the time the fastest car wins at Daytona. The fastest car finishes third or better a tick over 35% of the time. So you're right. You know, it's, it's easy to ignore the speed, but given what this form of racing is, it's close proximity racing. There's typically a high caution volume. Uh, there's a random number of positional changes, some of which are based on intent. It still is something of an advantage to have a fast car. And I, I would be doing a disservice to say speed doesn't matter. It matters less, but it still matters. And for some speed on drafting tracks is something of a forte. 
So, David, naturally, my next question would be to ask you, you know, who, who does have that speed or who has at least shown it? Or what, what do the charts say in terms of the three drafting track or two drafting tracks we've seen so far this season? Uh, good question. The fastest median lap in the Daytona 500 was turned by Kyle Larson. The fastest lap period in that race was turned by Chase Elliott. The fastest median lap at Talladega belonged to Alex Bowman. Alan, when we qualify at these tracks, what organization typically comes out on top? I'll go with the Daytona Dominators of Hendrick Motorsports, right? <laughs> yeah, there's okay. a knack. There's a knack for speed, and that knack extends to race time. Uh, sometimes it works well, just like it did for William Byron last year. But nevertheless, uh, Larson, Elliott, and Bowman have some heat underneath them, and I would expect that to remain the case this weekend. There's something on the line for Larson. There's something on the line for all of them, but I think they're coming to Daytona with with good cars because that is Hendrick's want. Someone else to watch we've already talked about is Bubba Wallace and 2311 Racing. They ranked seventh in median lap time in the Daytona 500, and Bubba turned uh, well his his best lap ranked second in that race. He turned the fastest lap at Talladega. And if we remember the Daytona qualifying race back in February, he very nearly won that thing. So I'd anticipate uh, a brand of speed equal to what we've seen there, because that is uh, of this young team. That is a burgeoning forte. Well, all right. And potentially, again, because of the format, they still have a chance. And that is a great bridge into my final question, David, or at least our picks, because every week on the podcast, we pick win picks, contrarian contenders. David, you wanted to switch it up a little bit this week because and ask, will this weekend's winner come from the pool of previous 2021 winners or non-winners? Will we see the win and in this weekend in Daytona? I'll let you go first, David. As tantalizing as it is to pick a non-winner, because that includes Denny Hamlin, I am picking the previous winner pool. Specifically, I feel like the winner is going to emerge from Team Penske, right? Because that trio of Keselowski, Blaney, and Logano is just sights to behold at these racetracks. If you want me to narrow it down, I think I'm going to pick Joey Logano. Uh, He ranked second in median lap time in the Daytona 500. He also ranked second in the same category at Talladega. He spends time at the front of the uh, front of the fields. That's what he says he wants to do. He's really not worried about the risk. That is his downfall. That is how this pick goes completely south. Uh, but, but broader scope, the Penske boys do hold serve. And at the very least, uh, they punch up the entertainment factor, which, you know, that's important too. Can't wait. Um, look, you think with your head, I think with my heart. I think that's what makes the podcast, uh, our podcast work so well, David. I'm just a sucker. I'm a sucker for a good story. So I will say I'm going with the group of non-winners. I'll take that field because, as you mentioned, not only do I get Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, who are both quite good, but uh, the story, David, I mean, you mentioned Bubba, what we saw out of him, the potential speed. How cool would a Bubba win be? How cool would a Ryan Priest win be? He's always there at the end of these things. There's there's no reason why he couldn't be a Michael McDowell, if you will. Uh, he is there. He has some sort of other skill at these tracks. He is there at the end of these things. Tyler Reddick, Matt Benedetto. Uh, again, one of those drivers seems to find himself at the, the front of the field at the end of these races. 
all capable of winning these things, all hungry, obviously, for that playoff spot. So, David, I am, I'm the sucker for the good story. So I will go with a group of non-winners, and I can't wait to see who comes out on top. The writers very focused on their storylines after Daytona are rooting for your option. I, I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm more pragmatic. I, I think. Yes, uh, you are. <laughs> is, I'm, I'm sorry. The group of winners, it turns out they're pretty good too. So yeah. it's uh, tough to be. But either way, it's going to be worth watching. It is. I mean, it's Daytona, Saturday night, uh, the last race of the regular season. It should be good. And one of the teams we talked about earlier in the podcast, maybe they can vault themselves into the playoff spot and, uh, you know, get over that Mendoza line. But good stuff. We will see who is uh, correct come Saturday night. So, David, good episode, episode 117 of Positive Regression. Another good one there. Don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd like to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod. That's at P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are always working hard. What do you got this week? This week, I will set fire to the NBC Sports comment section by writing an analysis on Bubba Wallace. I will also preview the race in Daytona, but it's a different bit of previewing for me. I'm going to highlight the five drivers with legitimate shots at scoring their first win of 2021 in this weekend's race. So do check that out uh, and go visit nascar.nbcsports.com. I'll give them some love. Nate Ryan, Dustin Long, Chris Estrada, also on the NBC Sports writing staff, just bringing good news, opinion, analysis. If you're a NASCAR fan and you haven't bookmarked that page, uh, what are you waiting for? Go do it because it's good stuff. All right. Good stuff there. And just make sure you keep up on my social channels on Twitter. I uh, got a lot of good stuff going on after you listen to this podcast Thursday morning. Thank you for subscribing, of course. But make sure you go over to my page and watch the latest edition of Quick Hits. It's the video I do for Speed Sport that just sets up your entire weekend. There's so much just beyond NASCAR. I've learned a lot personally. I hope you guys can take away something from that and just learn uh, you know, what's coming up throughout the weekend of racing, especially on dirt. It's a huge dirt weekend uh, so far this weekend. On Friday, make sure you tune in to nascar.com for the fantasy live segment uh it's the last week of the regular season which means you can use all the starts don't worry about saving anybody else because the game kind of resets for the playoffs so if you have good drafting drivers make sure you use them all fill your lineup we'll fill you in with the nascar fantasy live segment myself amy long myself and amy long do so make sure you watch that and uh yeah just uh keep, keep up with me on twitter facebook uh and instagram whatever uh whatever you like so and thank you for listening to episode 117 of positive regression it's been another good episode we look forward to the race saturday night we'll see you next week Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. 
Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.